WBCA Radio is proud to present City Talk, where fascinating conversation is alive and well, with your host, Boston Radio veteran, Ken Meyer. Hello again, everybody. Welcome to another edition of City Talk. As you know, I love radio. And it's my pleasure to welcome a, a lady who is probably one of the most prolific people in the world, and also one of the great radio historians of all times. And she is a local lady and has been around here for years. And her name is Donna Helper. And Donna, first of all, I can't tell you how great it is to have you back to do this again. Oh, are you kidding me? I, it, I love it. But Kenny, you just said something. I'm shocked to find out. You love radio? I did not know that. Really? Well, wow. this, is your, this is your first clue. Um, I'm, I'm shocked but, and chagrined. Now, you we, are, are, we are two people that radio is a part of our lives, has been a part of our lives for so many years. And I know what some of you are thinking. Oh, you guys are old. <laughs> no, nope. yeah. we're, we're young and cute. And well, radio has kept us young and cute. In some ways, I don't like to be as old as I am, but in others, I like it because I got to know radio when it was really radio and mm-hmm. worth listening to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I have my own memories of local radio in Rochester, oh, New absolutely. York. But and I, I just want to say something about age for a second. Um, that famous Negro Leagues baseball player, Satchel Paige. Satchel Paige, yep. Yeah. Yes. He said, supposedly, and I say supposedly because this quote has been attributed to about 90 other people, but he's the most famous of the people that it was attributed to. He was an African-American pitcher, uh, pitched in the Negro Leagues for many years because of segregation, couldn't get into the major leagues. When he finally did get in, by some accounts, he was like 50. And someone came to him and said, wow, 50, that's like kind of old to be in the major leagues. And he supposedly said, age is a question of mind over matter. If you don't mind, it It don't matter. matter. Yep. And that's kind of how I feel about it. I'm 75. God willing, I'll be 76 uh, on Valentine's Day. I'm ah, still young and cute. And I'm still working full time. And I got my PhD when I was 64 years old, okay? So age means whatever you say it does. I'm not saying that like I could run a marathon, probably could, (laughs) but then again, I couldn't run one in good times. But the fact still remains, if you think you're old, then by God, you're old. But if you think that you're just like out there doing what you love, I say, that keeps you young because you're young at heart. It's it's interesting that you mentioned Satchel Page because <clears throat> my father, God rest his soul, uh, was a big minor league baseball fan. And being in Rochester, they were a farm club of the St. Louis Cardinals. And Miami had a ball club at that time in the International League, the Miami Marlins. And one of the people that my dad would go to Red Wing Stadium and see him pitch was a guy named Satchel Paige. Wow. So how do you like that? Wow. And that was in his later years. Imagine being able to see him in his younger years. I do a lot of research. I'm I'm a writer for Sabre, the Society for American Baseball Research. 
And yep. one of the things I do a lot of research and write a lot of articles about is the Negro Leagues. And uh, there were so many great players back then who in another time would be in the major leagues and we wouldn't be thinking twice about it. But Satchel Page had to wait for years to get his shot. Yep. And we all owe it to Bill Vick. Mm-hmm. Um, I have two books that I'm eventually going to get to to read about two ball players that were in the minor leagues. One was Josh Gibson. Oh, yeah. And what another a shame one that was. Yeah. Was a guy I never had heard of until I got this book called Oscar Charles. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. 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 I didn't know who he was. I don't know much about him yet because <clears throat> I haven't read the book. But, um, but he I donated, if it's the same person I'm thinking of, he donated some of his archival materials to the Atlanta Public Library. And mm-hmm. I was going through some of them. And wow, fascinating stuff. Yeah, um, I read a, a recent book on Roy Campanella and his journey up to the majors was incredible. He owes a lot of his catching t- talents to a guy named Biz Mackey. Oh, sure. Who, was, and I love how you know all these names. This is great. I love it. And there's but, but, also there's also a book um, called Barnstorming to Heaven, Sid Pollock uh, and his great black teams. Now, Sid Pollock was a very controversial person to some people. Um, he was a white guy who sponsored a bunch of black teams that were kind of in the mold of the Harlem Globetrotters, the Indianapolis Clowns, et cetera. And there are some people who feel like that was kind of demeaning. But his son wrote a really interesting book. Now, take into account, it's his son. Dad was wonderful. Dad did no wrong. But however you feel about Sid Pollock, And he did some very, very interesting things. The point is, the book has a lot of interviews with former Negro Leagues players, and it provides some very interesting perspectives about what it was like to be in the Negro Leagues in the 30s, in the 40s, and to be a member of the formerly Miami Clowns who moved to Indianapolis. And they were a team that not only clowned. I mean, they were funsters. They did like vaudeville routines, but they were also incredibly talented ball players. And I just wrote a bio of one of them, a guy by the name of Peanuts Davis. And uh, that will be live on Sabre's website, sabr.org, probably within the next couple of weeks. Uh-huh. Yeah, that, that that kind of stuff is written. Did you ever, re- and I have not read this book. I keep meaning to, but for a long time, there has been a book out entitled Only the Ball Was White. I'm looking right at it. <laughs> I have it on my bookshelf. It is wonderful. There's some great information in it. Yeah, I may I may have to read it one of these days. I keep, every time I go to read it, I find a book. That, oh, geez, I got to read. I got to read this one. Oh, I got the same first. problem. I have a bookshelf full of stuff that it's like, oh, my God, I really got to read this at some point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I could spend 24 hours a day reading books and do nothing else. And I still wouldn't get them all read. Oh, I know. Uh, Well, these days I write a lot of articles. I mean, I've written six books, but I mean, I write a lot of articles because 
writing books in today's climate, particularly reference books, it's very labor intensive and you don't make a ton of bucks from it. And agreed, I'm not looking to get fabulously wealthy writing books, but I would like to at least recover my costs. And unfortunately, the industry, the book industry has consolidated just like radio has, where you've got like a small number of publishers and the rates that they pay to authors, eh, not so good. Now, if you're writing some kind of, you know, sex and scandal book, then yeah, you can get all kinds of advances for that. But if you're just doing research and referencing stuff, you're probably not going to make as much money. So a lot of us that do that work, we just do it online now for uh, really credible websites like Sabre. And that way, other researchers and students and whoever else can read our stuff, possibly benefit from it. We crowdsource, you know, we talk to each other about articles, we help each other out. And I hope that a future generation of researchers will find our stuff useful. But in terms of writing another book, I, I just I don't see it right now just because of all the work that goes into it for very, very little return. Tell us about some of the books that you wrote. Well, um, way back in the 1990s, I wrote some reference texts for a company called Focal Press. Um, one of them was about how to be a music director. They were they're all how-to guides, you know. Um, one of them was about how to do full service radio, which is kind of adult contemporary radio with a lot of features like sports and talk and things like that. WBZ, back when it played music, gradually evolved into a full service station where the music was secondary to the talk and the features. But my how-to guides were read all over everywhere. In fact, I found out that they were translated into other languages. Now today, music directing is very different from how it was in the 80s and early 90s, just before the internet. But I still think a lot of the stuff that I wrote about was useful and instructive, and it led me to another book that was much more of a labor of love. And that was a book I wrote in 2001 called Invisible Stars, A Social History of Women in American Broadcasting. I had been told all my life that there were no women in broadcasting, that you know women didn't really get into broadcasting until years later, like the 1980s and 90s, maybe the 1970s. And I couldn't believe that was true. It all started for me when I wanted to get into radio. Not like, you know, me, Donna, but I'm saying like a young female person listening to the radio, loving it, loving the DJs and thinking, they're all guys. I wonder where the women are. And the women back then were all doing cooking shows or fashion shows or celebrity gossip shows. I didn't want to do any of that. I wanted to play the hits. And I wondered why there weren't any women doing that. And when I got to college, I decided to research it. Nothing. Couldn't find a thing. All of the 
textbooks that were about the history of broadcasting not only contained information that I later found out to be historically untrue, and we can talk about that, but they also completely wrote women and minorities out of history. So that set me to wondering, who was my mother? You know, who was the mother of women broadcasters? And what other minorities were in broadcasting? I mean, agreed, I'm white. But after I finally got on the air at Northeastern University, where I became the first woman in the history of the university in October of 1968, not long after that, the first African-American broadcaster got on the air as well. So I'm thinking, ah, okay, there's me. And there's Art Rusa. He was the first African-American broadcaster that I can recall on the station. And I just decided I would do some research and find out who came before us, because there had to be somebody before 1968. And as I said, I found nothing. And that just didn't seem right. So back in the old days, you went to the microfilm. So I spent hours at libraries, hours. It took years, okay? It wasn't a project that I could just do in one day. But I found that there were all kinds of women and minorities who were on the air in the 20s, in the 30s, in the 40s. And no, they weren't all doing cooking shows. And no, they weren't all singers. And I kind of put it in the back of my mind, you know, someday I'm going to write a book about this. And that led to my 2001 book, Invisible Stars, A Social History of Women in American Broadcasting, which wasn't just about, oh, this person was a DJ and this person did this and that. No, it was about how society's attitudes changed. And it came out in 2001, and I was told that it was the only study of all of the women who had participated in broadcasting and the changing attitudes about women as newsmakers, women as subjects of stories, women covering those stories, that kind of stuff. As time went on, a lot of things in society changed with the arrival of the internet, with the arrival of a lot of newspapers being digitized. By 10 or 12 years later, I'm thinking to myself, there's an awful lot of stuff I wasn't able to include in my first edition. I wonder if there's enough for a second. It turns out there was. And in 2014, I published a revised and expanded second edition. It's funny because people always told me when I got started, oh, you'll never find enough. Are you kidding me? I got like close to 400 pages with pictures. And I hope I was able in my first edition and in my second to shine a light on the contributions that women, including Black women, have made to the history of broadcasting. I'd love to do a third edition. I really would. But like I said, there's not a lot of money in it. I'm not sure there's a publisher who'd be interested. So I just write a lot of articles about the people that I wasn't able to write about when I wrote my second edition in 2014. And boy, that's a long answer, isn't it? Yes, I've it's written kind other I like. books. The other book that I love the most 
and that still sells, by the way, is a book I wrote for Arcadia Press called A History of Boston Radio, 1920 to 2010. I love it dearly. It has rare photos from my personal collection and also the only history that I know of about Boston radio, how it grew, how it changed, settling a couple of myths, et cetera, et cetera, and writing my cultural hero, Eunice Randall, the mother of us all, the first woman broadcaster in Massachusetts. She didn't do a fashion show. She didn't do a cooking show. She did do a children's show because that was kind of expected back then. You know, she read stories to the kiddies, but she also did like a regular air shift and she also did some engineering. She was just a wonder. And I wish I had met her, Eunice Randall. And I I just, I admire her to bits and pieces. I promised her living relatives that I would tell her story and write her back into history. And I'm very proud that now if you look in reference volumes, Eunice is in them as she should be. One of my dearest friends, when I I spent 14 years at, at WBZ Radio, and one of the best friends I ever had was Carl DeSouz. Yep. And he always used to talk about a lady named Marjorie Mills. Oh, she was like his sidekick. She was a society reporter, I believe, for the Boston Herald. But she always did a lot more than that. Again, women were channeled into, you could be a society reporter, you could be a fashion reporter, you could be a food reporter. But a lot of these women did that because that's the only jobs they could get. And they kind of mastered it and made it theirs, like Louise Morgan, okay? They said, okay, this is what the limitations are. But like I said, way back in the 1920s, there was Eunice Randall confounding what people said women could do, okay? There was Bertha Brainerd. Bertha Brainerd worked for NBC Radio. She became like the talent scout for the entire network. You didn't get on the air unless you did an audition for Bertha. And she discovered a number of famous people. So again, there were the Marjorie Mills who were expected to cover, you know, food and fashion. And maybe they loved it. Maybe they did. But I really wonder what would have happened if they had also been allowed to cover news because Marjorie did a wonderful job when she was on the air with Carl DeSue. She knew a lot of people. She knew all the celebrities in town. She was very plugged in, widely admired. And there were other people like her. And it was really a privilege to grow up listening to some of them and to write about them in my books and in my articles. You know, you mentioned about how the music business has changed. I can remember hearing stories <clears throat> of, of singers like Jerry Vale, Eddie Fisher, uh, and many others personally coming to different radio stations and promoting their particular hit at the time. Oh, absolutely. That's how the game was played. Um, you had song pluggers. And song pluggers often worked for the publishers. 
and they would go around to different stations with their songs and with the sheet music. And if the song was identified with a famous vocalist, so much the better. Like the famous song, Take Me Out to the Ball Game. You know, take me out to the ball game. Oh, Donna. Yeah, I've, I've heard that from time but to time. But Take yeah. Me Out to the Ball Game goes all the way back to 1908. And one of the guys who wrote it was married to a famous vaudeville singer named Nora Bays, B-A-Y-E-S. And he basically wanted her to sing it. And she made it hers. And you can see it on the sheet music. It's like, take me out to the ball game, the hit song featuring Nora Bays. And it's also very interesting that the first verse kind of got written out of the song because the first verse is about a woman baseball fan who wants her boyfriend to not buy her Cadillacs and diamonds, but he, she wants her boyfriend to take her out to the ball game. And there were always women baseball fans, even back in 1908. But long story short, yeah, so a song plugger would have taken that sheet music and gone around back when there was radio, finally, in 1920. They would have gone around and said, hey, you know, got this great song, you ought to play it. And if it was associated with a famous singer, so much the better. Gradually, the record companies started promoting the songs, and that led to promotion men and a few promotion women, I must say. And they, they would come around to the music directors, people like me, music directors at the radio stations, and try to persuade us to play the records. Now, in the ideal universe, this was done ethically. Okay, the record promoter would come in. Hey, I've got a great new song I want you to hear. What do you think of it? We listened to it on the turntable. This was the old vinyl records era. And if I yep. liked it, I might add it. If I didn't like it, I'd just be like, you know what? I love you, man, but I just don't hear this record. I just <laughs> don't hear it. Okay, we'll get you on the next one. But there were some people, let's be honest, who always wanted to cut corners and who were not ethical and who tried to bribe program directors and music directors. And that led to the payola scandal of 1958 and yep. other subsequent payola scandals. I would be lying to you if I said that record promoters did not come in and try to bribe me. Some of them absolutely did. Funny story. So I'm working at WMMS in Cleveland, okay? And I've just gotten there. And there was a custom. That custom lasted for years. It may still be around today, but I don't know. There was a custom that the record promoters would come in on the first day that the new music director took over. It was called Radio Day. And they would come in and they would introduce themselves and they would bring a gift, okay? And I don't know from this. I'm just happy to have a job. And there's this line of record promoters. The first record promoter comes in. He introduces himself. Let's call him Joe. And he says, um, yeah, I got something for you. And I know you're going to like it. And I'm thinking, you know, maybe two tickets to a ball game. Nope. It's a nickel bag. Now, I know I don't do drugs. I've never done drugs but I know marijuana when I smell it, okay? And he must have 
misread my cues because I wasn't expecting somebody to bring me marijuana. Okay. Um, and so I kind of looked sort of, ew. And he said, no, 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 this is really good stuff. I mean, if this is not what you want, would you rather have cocaine? And I'm like, sure. uh, no. Well, well, what do you want? I mean, just tell me what you want and I'll bring it. I said, <laughs> well, I don't do drugs. And he was like, uh, what do you do? I said, ice cream? Uh, coffee? Donuts? I, my tastes are pretty simple. And he kind of looked at me and said, I'm never going to get my records played here, am I? <laughs> he said, it's got nothing to do with anything. I just, I don't do drugs. And his face brightens and he goes, you know what? I don't do them either. I stopped doing them. I said, <laughs> you don't have to make nice. Do whatever you do. But in the end, what matters is, do you have good records? He said, yeah, but I've got this budget and I'm supposed to spend it. And if I don't spend it, they'll take it away. I said, I get a great idea. I'm very into big brothers and big sisters and have been for years. Why don't we take your budget that's supposed to be for like bringing people, you know, whatever they want. Here's what I want. Let's make a Christmas party for some kids and big brothers and big sisters. Okay, now I'm Jewish. It's not my holiday. But I understand these are kids that in many cases aren't going to get a Christmas present. Let's get them one. Let's throw them a party. We'll get good publicity. You'll spend your budget. Win-win. And that's exactly what we did. It made the newspapers. A whole bunch of kids got presents. And it was all good. And he still didn't get a lot of his records played. But some of them he did because some of them were good records. And that's the point. If you're a music director and if you're ethical, you've got the opportunity to listen to the music first. And that in itself is really exciting. As you know, I discovered a rock band, Canadian rock band called Rush. And they dedicated two albums to me and I'm in a documentary about them. But my point is, I got to hear that music first. I got to be the one to help them get some airplay. It was an exciting job. I didn't need payola. I didn't need somebody giving me bribes. I was just, I mean, I'm a working class kid from Dorchester, Massachusetts. Nobody thought I would be anything in life. And I was a girl before females were encouraged to go into broadcasting. So there I am at one of the biggest stations in the United States, listening to the new music first. What do I need drugs for? I'm just like, I'm delighted that I'm doing what I'm doing. I had a great career. Now, that said, I never got equal pay. I feel like Jerry Williams, nobody ever gave me a dinner. Nobody <laughs> ever gave me one either. Okay. I never got equal pay. I did get sexually harassed. I was subjected to treatment that a guy in my position never would have been. But what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. I wouldn't trade in my 40-year broadcasting career for anything. I'm happy I was there. I loved the industry. I got a chance to meet some wonderful people, some famous people, to help some people with their careers. I got to turn down a whole bunch of drugs and turn it into a Christmas party for big brothers and big sisters. So there's that. I uh, 
was not in like Boston. I'm talking way too much, but then again, I used to be a DJ. So <laughs> there you are. I, I was not in Boston in the 50s and 60s, but the two names that I heard about arguing over who would be the first to get a record on the air were Dave Maynard and Bob Clayton. Absolutely. And Bob Clayton, real name Bob Clayman, and he was told to change it because he was told it sounded too Jewish. Yeah. Ah, the good old days. Now, in yeah. fairness, if you had an ethnic name back then, they made you change it. Uh, the famous Jim Sands on WHDH doing an oldie show, real yep. name James Samprakis. They made right. him change it. Bill Marlowe, who was on every adult radio station playing adult contemporary and Sinatra, he hated rock and roll. He was <laughs> famous for saying, I play M-U-S-I-C, not N-O-I-S-E. I mean, he absolutely despised rock and roll. But Bill Marlowe's real name was William Moglia, M-O-G-L-I-A. And they told him that sounded too Italian. So back in those days, you couldn't have an ethnic name. You were supposed to sound like really generic. But back to Bob Clayton. Yeah, Bob Clayton worked at WHDH. And he was the kind of guy where he knew everyone. He had been on the air since 1946. He had lots of contacts in the industry, and he lived in that era where radio was still live, and then he lived in the DJ era. And in the era when radio was still live, and when I say live, I mean not so much records. You had a studio orchestra. You had vocalists coming by. I mean, Eddie Fisher would come by and sing on the air. Um, Frankie Lane came by and sang on the air. So Bob Clayton was around during that world, as were many adult contemporary program directors, music directors, and DJs back then, okay? And they all were able to span that gap between when radio was, hey, here comes an artist and he's going to sing, to, oh, here comes an artist, and now we're going to play his hit song. But because he had established those contacts, yeah, he was able to get just about anybody in. He also ended up doing a TV show. I mean, he was a legend in Boston radio. I think he's kind of forgotten now. I believe I wrote a profile about him for one of the websites. But in his day, one of the most influential announcers out there. Tell me about Maynard, what... though, Dave Maynard. Yeah. Same situation. Yep. OK. And I can name you a bunch of announcers that we could say the same thing about. Because, again, in an era where radio was all live, you were able to establish ties with band leaders. You were able to establish ties with vocalists. You could, you know, promote a song on the air because you really liked that version, that kind of thing. When we went to all records, yeah, the idea of the DJ as just like somebody that played the hits, that was problematic for people who were in an era where their personality was what mattered. 
but they still found a way. They still were able to be on stations that let them have that personality. And WBZ, like the old WHDH, tried very hard to straddle those two worlds, playing some of the hits, but also letting the announcers, the DJs, have a personality of their own. And yeah, Dave Maynard had uh, graduated from Emerson College, I believe in 1951. And then he got his first gig at an old station that is no longer around. I believe he was on WHIL. And long story short, when he got hired by WBZ, BZ had only a couple of years earlier um, gotten rid of NBC network programming and started hiring live and local DJs who they called the Live Five. And the Live Five were five live DJs. And Maynard became one of them. He was not one of the originals, but he did become one of the Live Five and really got a name for himself in Boston for being somebody who was personable, creative. Later in the 60s, he took over hosting that TV show, Community Auditions, which had been hosted by Gene Jones back before he took it over. And so everybody knew who he was. Maynard had the BZ farm stand. I mean, there was nowhere that he didn't appear. So yeah, he was another very, very influential personality, as was Carl D'Souza. Now, Carl didn't play as much music, but when he came down from Maine in 1942, he started a long career with BZ, and he was a great storyteller. He was a raconteur. He'd been everywhere. If he hadn't been there, he read about it but he would tell these stories and just make you feel like you were a world traveler just by listening to him. Like I said, and you know this because if you grew up in a city where they had a big station with personality DJs, you heard that same thing. You heard the Bob Claytons, you heard the Dave Maynards and the Carl D'Souza's. Yeah, they played records, but the records weren't the only thing they did. What they did was create a bond with the listener where you felt like they were talking to you. For me, the person I felt like they were talking to me, Arnie Ginsberg. Arnie Ginsberg was my inspiration for getting into radio. He was on the air at WMEX. He had started off at the old WBOS um, and he did the night train show. And he did all these bells and whistles and woo-woo Ginsburg. And he had a high squeaky voice like this. And one of the things that I had always been told was that women couldn't go into radio because we didn't have a big, deep voice. <laughs> but Arnie didn't have a big, deep voice. And Arnie was the most popular DJ in Boston. And I always felt like, you know what? If Arnie can do it, I can do it. And one of the things I am really proud of in terms of meeting my heroes, because a lot of times you meet your heroes, it's a disappointment. I yep. wish I had met Eunice Randall, but she died before I started doing media history on a serious level. Plus, she came from the 1920s. And hey, I may be old, but I ain't that old. Um, but Arnie Ginsburg, 
I got to meet him at a convention in 2004. And I got to basically bow before him and say to him, you know what, thanks to you, I got to be a broadcaster. And, you know, I never met you. You weren't my mentor. But hearing you on the air made me believe that I could do it. And I will always owe you. And if I ever write a book about Boston radio, I'm going to put you on the cover. I did. And I did. I did write a book about Boston radio. And he was on the cover. It was in 2010. And I am told by people who knew him well that he loved that book. And they weren't just saying it to, you know, make me feel good. They were like, he loved that his picture was on the cover. In the final days of his life, he had dementia, unfortunately. But he would look at that picture. And from what I am told, he recognized that that was him. And I felt really good about that because he was the influence for so many people growing up. He did such great record hops. He did such great appearances. And he really sounded like he was having fun on the radio. He didn't care about his voice. He just wanted to entertain people. And I loved that. And that really was like a role model for me. Well, I will tell you that in the early 70s, I'm guessing 72, BZ Radio did a weekend and they called it the Grease Weekend. Yep. And they had DJs from all over the country. One of them was a guy named Dick Biondi, who worked at WKBW in oh, Buffalo. Yes, yes. But one of the people they had was Arnie Ginsberg. Yep. And the response was so great of hearing him on the air, they gave him a job. And oh, people adored him. On, on yep. Saturdays from five to eight o'clock. People adored him. They really did. Yep. I, I, mean, I, I, I got to know him. Uh, I, I have similar stories about that from, from Rochester Radio. Um, I, I used to, to know a gentleman who sounded so great on the air. And I always used to say to him, Bill, you sound so relaxed and just so comfortable. And his line was, it beats working. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> it's like, I'm getting paid for playing songs that I love. Cool. Yeah. I'm getting to meet famous people. How lucky yep. am I? Can't yep. complain. I, you know, I, I in, in the ideal universe, we all would have been treated better. Okay. I mean, even the guys. Let's not idealize the period. There were a lot of owners that were just in it for a buck. They treated their help terribly. You've had a lot of turnover at those stations. But then there were others where the owners really loved radio. And maybe you didn't get rich doing it because, yeah, sure, there were a few really high profile people. But getting started out there, I mean, I worked with Howard Stern, OK? Now, I would be lying if I said we were friends. We were on different shifts. I don't think we ever ran into each other once. But he was at the same little radio station that I was in upstate New York in Briarcliff Manor, WRNW. And I'm sure he was making minimum wage, just like I was. And the owner was no prize, I got to tell you. But you went to those places to get the experience that led you to the bigger markets. 
So you did what you had to do. And it's still, even at its worst, it still was the most fun job I ever had. And I miss being on the radio every day of my life. Yeah, I miss it too. I miss, uh, I mean, I got to work. I, I remember one day I was interviewing Upton Bell. And we were talking about how great it had been to be at BZ when we were both there. And he said to me, you know, one of the things that made it great was that everybody that was there was a star. Yep. Very definitely. I mean, and the sports talk. talk back then, okay? What I remember very clearly, and please don't get me wrong, friendly listeners, I am not saying, oh, the good old days were wonderful. No, they weren't. The good <laughs> old days were racist, sexist, homophobic, and a whole bunch of other things that I'd really rather not go back to. Oh, and did I say anti-Semitic? But <laughs> on the other hand, there were some stations that were just wonderful. They really were. And there were some people that were just wonderful. And the kinds of things you could do back then on talk shows People didn't call you names. There wasn't the trash talking. It was just people that loved sports, whether it was calling all sports or sports huddle or any of those programs, whether you were Guy Manila or Eddie Andelman or whoever else, you know, you could just get on the air and talk about the teams. Yeah, you could be critical, but there wasn't that edge of meanness about it. There wasn't that edge of Gotcha. And that's kind of what I miss, too. You know, I, I've said on more than one occasion, the fairness doctrine wasn't perfect. OK, it was really bureaucratic. And I say that as someone who had to fill out some of those forms, but it kept people honest. It reminded people to present both sides. It reminded people to stay away from personal attacks. And yes, there were righty, righty talk show hosts. There were lefty talk show hosts. There were independent talk show hosts. Nobody was stifled or silenced. That's revisionist history. There were plenty of conservative hosts on the air and plenty of liberal hosts. And somehow the republic didn't fall if you got to hear both sides of the issues. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with having a courteous debate you can be impassioned. You can really get your point of view out there, but you don't have to be mean. You don't have to be cruel and you don't have to put other people down. So that kind of radio where we were all just passionate sports fans having a great time. I really do miss that. That does still exist on a few stations. That live and local, hey, let's talk about sports, absolutely still exists on some terrestrial stations. But the talk shows, nah, an awful lot of the talk shows today have just morphed into one-sided, nasty attacks. And I just can't go for it. I prefer the kinds of shows where people can just have a conversation. I mean, some of you may be familiar with Morgan White on WBZ. Morgan won't get into politics. He just won't. He'll talk popular culture. He'll talk trivia. He'll talk music. He'll talk movies. He'll talk theater, you know, whatever it is. But it's always 
courteous. I've been a guest on his show. I know you have as well. And when you're on with a host like Morgan, it's never adversarial and it's always informative. We just have fun with it, talking about radio, popular culture, etc. And when I say talking about radio, I mean radio history, the great jocks, the great entertainers, and also some of the current stuff, but without the harshness, without the meanness. And I really appreciate hosts like Morgan because they still love radio in the personality sense. Am I making sense or am I just babbling? Oh, no, no, absolutely. I, I totally agree with you. It's, it's funny as far as sports is concerned. I mean, I used to listen to Guy Manila every night. I loved absolutely. it. Two hours a night, perfect time for sports. I used to listen to, now this will jog your memory, the voice of sports on Saturday nights on WHDH with Don Gillis. Of course. And I, I really enjoyed those, but now... Don Gillis, who did candle pin bowling. Like, candle pins for cash. Which was a yep. huge thing in Massachusetts. Yep. People yep. laugh at me when I say that, but he used to get but, really good numbers doing candle pin bowling. I think it was at the Boylston Bowlodrome. That I don't know. But, you know, I, I don't like sports now because it's, I mean, 24 hours a day? Uh, no way. I mean, the Patriots lost on Sunday. I'm willing to bet that they're still talking about it. And on Monday, they talked about it all day and all night. And, you know, we knew they lost. So, okay, talk about something else. The Red Sox are without a shortstop. Talk about that. And they may be very well doing that. I don't listen to sports talk anymore. Um, and, and I used to be a big devotee of it. I mean, I loved Don Gillis's program. He had people like Joe Costanza. He had Tim Horgan. Oh, sure. He had Bill Liston. Leo, Leo Egan did some really good sports talk as well. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And I think later on, he did it from four to seven in the evening on, on good old WHDH. And they also uh, had some former players. Back in the 40s, they had a guy named Bump Hadley. His yep. real name was Irving. He was a <laughs> former pitcher and he did a sports show. I mean, but sports talk, I must say, goes all the way back to the 1920s. OK, um, there was a guy named Charlie Donlan. I'm going to be giving an in-person talk at the Dedham Historical Society in a couple of months. Charlie Donlan did a sports show, sports talk, in 1925 on WEEI. Seriously, he really did. Wow. I wish I knew how it sounded. There was no way to tape anything back then. Tape had not been invented. And I'm sure that by our standards, it sounded kind of forced or artificial or rough, but he knew everybody and he knew how to get interviews. And it must have been fascinating for the listeners to tune in to WEEI or the old WNAC and hear a baseball player interview. Now, today we take that for granted, but people like Babe Ruth had been on the radio as interviewees as far back as 1922, okay? 
I mean, Babe liked publicity and he went where he needed to go to get it. And when radio came along and they were looking for guests, he put his hand up. So this was just exciting to the average listener. Most of them could not afford to go to the game. You think tickets are bad now. Um, tickets were expensive back then, too, for the working person. They On paper, you look at it and you go, what, a dollar? That's not a big deal. Well, it was if you were just like making like 20 cents an hour and you couldn't get the time off. And it was really difficult to get to the ballpark. So listening on the radio, that was like, oh, my God, I can hear the game. I can hear players interviewed. This is amazing. So, yeah, that whole thing goes back a lot farther than most people realize, said Donna, who's a media historian. <laughs> yeah, I. Um, it, it's hard to look at it now with all the press conferences and, you know, everything. They have press conferences after a, after a game. Uh, they'll have, they, I mean, Tom Brady and Bill Belichick, Used to that was a regular feature every time there was a game. Well, and, the, and the problem though is that today they're all so stage managed that it's like everything they say. I can sit and predict. My husband and I have a little game going on where it's like, okay, the quarterback's going to come out and he's going to say, well, I could have played better, but I tried my best, you know. <laughs> and then the coach is going to come out and say, yep, there were some mistakes, and we all need to do better next week, you know. On to Cincinnati, you know. And yep. it's the same rote phrases. It's like somebody's publicist sat them down and said, we could get sued if you talk about X, so never talk about it. And it just sounds so forced, so artificial, and so stage managed that I almost wish they wouldn't do it. I mean, yeah, yeah. they take questions, but they don't tell you anything because somebody's corporate lawyer already told them what they can and cannot say. Well, these are the days of, uh, you know, before a Patriots game, they go on the air three hours ahead of time. Um, you know, you know who I blame, and I say this jokingly, but if I'm going to blame someone, I blame CNN. What? Yeah, CNN. Not CNN itself, like whether you like it, whether you hate it. But when CNN went on the air in 1980, it inaugurated. 24-7 news coverage, which meant that if there were only a couple of big stories, you had to fill the time with something. And that meant very often really beating the proverbial dead horse for hours on end because you had nothing else. And I think we've gotten into that today where it's like, okay, the game happened. For the next 24 hours, we're going to talk about, well, the quarterback, or in the case of a baseball game, well, the shortstop made an error, and this and that. But the next day, we have another 24 hours to fill. Got to fill it with something. So we're going to continue talking about the quarterback, or the shortstop, or the whatever, because this 24-7 universe, and the internet, and social media. It's like the giant beast demanding to be fed constantly. And so we've got to keep coming up with new angles and new stories. Now, agreed, it's better than the old days where you had news like, you know, once an hour, maybe. And uh, the networks did like a morning cast, an afternoon cast, and maybe an evening cast. And the rest of the time you waited for the newspaper to come out. But you didn't mind. There was nothing to compare it to. 
you were fine about it. Today, even the radio and TV stations are competing with the internet. They're competing with somebody that had the story up there five minutes ago, so we've got to get it up there. Oh my God, maybe we don't know about a fact yet, but we've got to get it. And there's this pressure to constantly find stuff to report and talk about, which doesn't always give a lot of time to do research, to fact check. That's where the, why there's so much misinformation online. Oh my God, did you hear that this and that is happening? Yeah, I, I certainly heard it, but that doesn't mean it's accurate. So it's putting a lot of pressure on stations to either be more outrageous or more cutting edge or more ahead of the curve. And that's not always a good thing. Do you like the fact of uh, eye-opener news starting at 4.30 in the, in the morning and, and news starting at four in the afternoon? I don't, because if you watch something at four o'clock and you go back to it at six, it's the same thing all over again. Exactly, exactly. But here again, let's talk about CUME. Now, those of us that are old school remember CUME, C-U-M-E. CUME measures how often or how much do people tune in to a station? And then there was quarter hour, which was how long do they stay? So in the case of most 4.30 newscasts, they're assuming that the people that cume the station at 4.30 aren't going to be around at 6.30 to go, huh, that's the same stories I heard at 4.30. They're assuming that like, ah, 4.30, they listened, they watched, they're out the door, they're gone, they're off to work because a lot of people had long commutes. Same thing with 6.30. Oh, I tune in at 6.30, I'm gone, okay? After I've heard what I need to hear, I hear my news, I hear my weather, I'm out of there. So in that regard, I sort of understand it, but the problem is the stations that, like I said, are counting on like all day listenership because people are listening in their offices or they're listening at home since the pandemic. And now you gotta like try to find different angles, different guests, different versions of the same story. And sometimes it just isn't that much to say about it. <laughs> All right. Before we wrap it up, one of the things that drives me crazy on the evening newscasts, I love David Muir. David Muir is an alumnus of Channel 5 and I think does a great job on ABC radio. I mean, on television. But what I don't like is the first 15 minutes of the show are great. But then after that, he'll do a, a 10 second story that takes that long to read. And then it's time for a commercial. When he comes back, he does the same thing. It takes 10 seconds to read a story and then another commercial. They never used to do that before that I can remember. And they also, that's the same thing on uh, the NBC evening news with Lester Holt. And I like Lester Holt. I yeah, think. I do too, as a matter of fact. But what I've noticed is you're right. The first 15 minutes, which is the A block, the, the thing that starts the show, and that's the one that everybody's going to watch or listen to. Yep. And in the A block, they have their biggest stories, their biggest features, their biggest interviews. And then they kind of seem to move towards the softer features, the lifestyle stuff, 
And then by the end of the show, they have that little kicker, that little inspiring thing. You know, the the person that uh, their dad was away overseas and suddenly their dad surprises them at the football game and everybody. Right. So that sort of thing. It almost kind of seems like it's packaged that way. They go from the heavy, hard news and then they fill it out with a little lifestyle and then they finish it off with something to inspire you and take your mind off of the fact that you just saw 15 minutes of blood and gore and guts. Right. Right. Well, listen, we have to do another program. There's no question. We have about to? It. It's in my contract. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's in, it's in, it's in mine that I have. Well, to I just hope I wasn't program. boring and, uh, you know, thank you for the opportunity to talk a little bit. Yeah, I all, it was no, not I boring at all. Talk with you, I just hope that I didn't like over talk or dominate the conversation. You know, I always used to say to Larry Glick, Larry, when you know you've got a good interview, sit back and shut up. And you are that. Oh, um, thank you. Thank there you. is nobody. I don't think there's anybody better, uh, except maybe Morgan, uh, at, at being interviewed and answering questions. So I hope that uh, you and I can work this out and do this again fairly soon. Oh, absolutely. I think that would be outstanding. I would love to do it. And thank you for having me on as a guest. I deeply appreciate it. Oh, believe me, it's my pleasure. It makes my life easy. And that will do it for another great edition of City Talk. Good night, everybody. Thanks for listening to another great conversation with Ken Meyer and friends. You can contact Ken by email. The address is kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. That's kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. Tune in next time for more conversation with Ken Meyer on City Talk.